Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash Agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes and tools dominate today's agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me today, uh, one of my favorite authors. Uh, She has had a huge impact on my career, uh, starting with Behind Closed Doors, moving on to Manage It and Hiring Geeks That Fit. These were early books that um, really had a huge impact on me. Lately, she's been writing about uh, estimation, program management, and some of the other more fun topics in the Agile community. Of course, I'm talking about... Joanna Rothman. Joanna, how are you? I'm great, thanks. and I'm so happy to be here. So, Joanna, you have a new book, Agile and Lean Program Management. Where are we going with this book? What was the motivator? (laughs) There's always, whenever I talk to authors, and and I'm always interested in this because someday I feel like I might have a book in me to write, but there always seems to be an inciting incident or a, um, a moment where a book just must be written. And I'm wondering, in your case, what was it that really that pushed this book and and really brought it to the forefront and just it had to be created? So I've actually been, I was a program manager in an almost agile organization many, many years ago. So I've had a lot of experience with program management. And I had decided even as early as I think 2012 or 13 that I really wanted to write this book. But I needed to have more experience with my clients. I I needed to try stuff out to make sure that it worked. And then along came SAFE. And (laughs) I've been a reviewer on on stages for the Agile Conference. I think they're finally now called Tracks. And uh, I remember, I think it was in 2013, that everyone was just in love with SAFE. And I kept thinking, this is not program management. This is not Agile. It's not Lean. What are these people doing so I said, okay, get with the program, Johanna, and finish this book. And of course, it's not just a story of finishing the book. It's all, all that happens when I write it. So I realized with a couple of workshops, I could not have a workshop with just program managers. I needed to have a workshop with a program cross-functional team. Just as I do with, when I teach Agile and Lean, I ask people to join me with their cross-functional teams, at least three or four people from every team, if not an entire team. And that had to be the same thing for the workshops. So that's when I realized that I really had, it wasn't that I was just railing against SAFE. SAFE might be good for many people who um, enjoy an iterative approach, but not what I would call Agile. And if you really want to do Agile and Lean program management, it's about how do you take your servant leadership and move it to the next level? How do you take 
a cross-functional program team and work that way as opposed to any of the other stuff that we see. So, and that's actually one of the favorite uh, topics and one of my favorite chapters in your latest book is when you talk about developing your servant leadership uh, at the at that program leadership level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, have you seen in in the traditional program manager, is there resistance there? Is there openness to it? What is the initial reaction when you tell someone who's been traditionally leading these massive initiatives that now you're going to serve those who are who are actually doing the 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 day-to-day work so they often have one of two perspectives one is i've been doing this all along and i i like it for my teams but my management wants me to control things so i can give them answers that of course are lies um but we can get to that later and and then the other perspective i often see is i don't understand how to get stuff out of people unless i take the whip and whip them. And that's not a very agile <laughs> way to approach the work. So so when you're coaching those people, are they, I would imagine that the ones that want to do well, and I shouldn't say want to do well, but the ones that want to be a serve, that wants to serve their teams, that's probably an easier coaching discussion than the ones that still want to use the carrot and the stick. So when you are dealing with the carrot and the stick type of program leaders, is that a lost cause or have you found ways to effectively turn that ship around? Oh, it's not a lost cause at all. When One thing I do is in my workshops, uh, we actually do a program. So, And that's when they realize that if they're part of the, the feature teams, they, don't, they want to do a good job. And this is, it can be as, as small as building a zoo or a, a mobile or something like that, right? It this is not a big simulation that takes an entire day that it takes um, fifteen hundred people to do. We can do a simulation with as few as twenty people. It works out really, really well because then if they're part of the feature teams, they say, "I really want to do this piece," and the fact that I don't have this other stuff from the program over here is what affects my ability to deliver. And that's how we get to an integrated roadmap with deliverables. And that's when, if the program manager comes around and says, you got to finish this in two, by two o'clock or whatever the time is, then people say, I'm working as hard as I can. Why don't you believe that I'm working as hard as I can? All of this is fodder for the debrief. And the debrief is what teaches these people how to be servant leaders. I could talk about it until I'm blue in the face. And and I and that's why I put the chapter in there. It's really important for people to see what they could do. But when they experience it, when they say, Oh, I understand now. If I provide if I smooth the path for people, I will get what I want from the program. And now I in quotes just have to deal with my management. It's those aha moments that I think are the most effective. I totally agree with you that once it, it, the theory is great and I think the books are important, but once you sit someone down and if you can show them um, how they've either become a bottleneck or how, they, how they're hurting people or how they're um, causing their own programs to be impacted negatively, nothing is more powerful than that. Right. It, it is it's the <laughs> ultimate impact. But what I find too, the useful measurements 
and yeah. an agile and lean program. It's another area that I think is it's full of of good intentions, yes. <laughs> right? So it's an area where people want to measure and they want to manage, but it gets lost. What are some of the top, from a program perspective, some of the top mistakes that you see people making? Good intended, of course, or well intended, mm-hmm. but some of the mistakes they're making when they when they measure and try to manage. Uh, at that level, especially around the metrics that they're looking at? So I see a lot of velocity metrics. And velocity is interesting, but it's not particularly useful across a program. Because velocity is a rate of travel, right? It does not say, are you getting to your destination any faster? So I like to look at destination as opposed to rate of travel. Because we might change our destination. We might say, we wanted, you know, I'm, I live in Boston. You live in, where do you live? I'm in Indiana. Indiana. So I would have to stop overnight somewhere um, in order to drive from Boston to Indiana. And if, I, if my car broke down, you know, somewhere in Pennsylvania or something, you might actually say, uh, I might say I could rent a car. You might say, well, I can come meet you part way. I mean, there's any number of things we we might do if I was to drive from Boston to Indiana. And that's when you look at completed features as opposed to the rate of, of work. Because velocity might just be a rate of work as opposed to completed features. Now you have a very, very different perspective on what the team can and cannot deliver. So if I'm, I'm hearing this right, it's really a move towards looking at throughput rather than velocity. Yes. That, that's, that's been, a, I think, a huge topic in the community lately, that, that looking at, uh, I think, even visualizing it through cumulative flow diagrams, mm-hmm. being able to see the, the throughput at each step, uh, and then seeing where your bottlenecks are and how to free those up, as opposed to, uh, at least in my opinion, velocity, which is a very uh, gameable number. Oh, it's <laughs> there's there's a schedule game called Double Your Velocity, which is you just, just um, multiply your story points by two. Now you've got double your velocity. It's very easy. Hey, we're, double, we're doubly productive. Let's get a raise, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so definitely velocity is one of those that I even think uh, Ron Jeffries says he wishes he could uninvent. So it's, yeah, uh, I, I saw that too. And I thought, okay. Um, but I, th- I think it's really important to say not all features are created equal. And so teams, teams will not be able to finish features at the same rate. But it's really important to see what we have done and what remains. Clearly velocity, not the, the best metric in the world but still valuable, I think, as an internal... It's really a capacity measurement as well. So it could be valuable to the team. Throughput, as we discussed, clearly better. Is there a key metric, though? Let's say that we do have the, the data-driven, the metric-driven type of leaders in, in the PMOs and at the program level. Aside from uh, throughput or velocity measurement, what is the killer metric at that level? And what, what is the one that they really should be focusing on? I really like the product backlog burn-up chart. That's where you see the relative size of each feature set and how much the a team or teams have completed for that feature set. So for me, it shows you what people really want to know. They want to know, have we started any of these features? How much, how much through these features are we? Okay, that was sort of English. Um, 
but <laughs> what is our progress through this feature set? There, that was English. And how do we how do we make it so we understand is there more value in this feature set still or should a team or teams go on to another feature set? I think that's a great shift in mindset. It's getting us away from the productivity uh, kind of measurements back to a, a value mm-hmm. kind of discussion, right? So we're more interested in the feature sets and where they're at and where they're and when they're getting delivered as opposed to was this person at 100% capacity today? Right. So I, I actually have a little bit in here about um, resource efficiency versus flow efficiency. And so many managers are still stuck on resource efficiency. Because if you have people in silos, like we did for Waterfall, it was very important to use those people in the best possible sense of use if you thought that that's what made the world go round. But in Agile and Lean, um, throughput or productivity, which I don't happen to like as a word, but throughput is a team measure. And if you think about what teams can um, do, that's when you start saying, we need to think about flow efficiency. How does work flow through this team? How do we make sure that the work can still flow through this team and get the value that we want out of it? And that's one of my key concerns around SAFE. As you noted uh, at the beginning that SAFE was perhaps the, perhaps the inspiration for getting this book out. But in the SAFE context, that's a key concern in the community, that it is an optimization still at that resource as opposed to flow level. And uh, I think it's one of the key reasons that a lot of people would say it's not meeting that, that agile standard. Is that fair? Well, there's a couple things about SAFE that I find quite troublesome. The notion of comparing teams on their velocity and having to commit to an entire quarter's worth of work. I, I don't see how you can commit to anything that big. I don't even like commitment <laughs> for two-week iteration. So that's me and that's my lean roots showing. But I think that the other part is um, in SAFE, there's this confusion, at least I believe it's a total confusion, about the product roadmap and the project portfolio. If you think about the product roadmap, that's value for this product of which this program is one instantiation for this product, right? This is all for in the sense of one release for a given product. So you wanna optimize the roadmap, right? But that's for a given product. And only in the very smallest organizations do I see that the product roadmap is the same as the project portfolio. So for me, the project portfolio is you got projects over here and you got projects over there and you got projects in a third and fourth and fifth place. And maybe some of them are connected and they're a program, but more often they are not. And so if you are trying to get a release of a product out in the form of a program, then let's make sure that we have all of the value in, for, in terms of a roadmap for this particular program. Let's not confuse that with the project portfolio, which is optimizing for the entire organization. Very, very important distinction. And perhaps, I mean, to be fair to SAFE, there are some organizations that are hopelessly aligned and organized in a way that Agile may not be a great fit, but it's great that SAFE could be a thing that, that goes in and at least gets them working in in an iterative manner. And so I think there are some 
as with anything, there's some pluses and minuses, but I think you've clearly pointed out an area that people really need to be cautious, especially when they're heading down that safe path. Well, and I happen to think that release trains are quite useful. So there's a lot about safe I find useful. For me, it's not really sufficient for Agile. Yeah, and I I think you get a lot of agreement there, at least for me, and, and I know some many others, even within the safe community that say it, it is um, that there are still areas to improve and the fact that they continue to release multiple versions. So I think they're on 4 or 5.0 means that they are improving it and we'll see how it moves in the future. One of the other pieces of your book, it took a very honest approach. Your last chapter, um, I thought was incredibly honest because there's a lot of people you'll notice in the, or at least what I've noticed in some of the, the consulting areas and some of the you know, in some of the, 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 the darker corners of our community is that some people don't want to say that Agile is a bad fit for, <laughs> for a client or an organization. And I thought that the way that you kind of, you tied the, you know, you, you tied off the, the book with what happens if Agile and Lean are not right for you. Right. And I thought this was a very honest way to end it. What can organizations do if, if a, and I don't know the right adjective, if, if a pure not even peers, not the right. If Agile and Lean are not a good fit, what do you think organizations can do in, to try to get uh, some of their, their, their systems of work corrected, some of their flows optimized? You know, what, what have you seen be effective even in organizations that can't adopt all of these practices? So, and I especially think that there are many organizations that are not suited to an Agile culture of transparency. So if you right. cannot have transparency and trust and safety in the teams, if, if you can't have flow efficiency as opposed to resource efficiency, then there are many things you can do. One thing is you can have deliverable-based planning. This is a key to creating a roadmap that people can deliver features into. You can say, we might want to use release trains. We might want to use incremental life cycles. So uh, for many, many years, I used what's called a stage delivery life cycle, where I said at the beginning of the, we had a kickoff of the program, and for the next two weeks, the, the product manager people, in whatever form they were, could generate requirements. And the only thing I said was, you have to rank the requirements. I can't have must, could, should, would, or whatever it is. I can't have... Um, you, we, we have three rankings and there's the must, which is almost everything, and the level two, which is we really want this, and the level three is walk the dog first. I mean, we, we can't have that. We actually have to rank the requirements. And I don't care if you say we have to have these 20 things in the, in the product. You have to rank all of those 20 things, even if they're right behind each other, and we don't have a good product without all of them. So I would give them two weeks to do that, and they always complained and moaned, and then they they would do it because I would I would come after them in, in every couple of days and in the first week and say, so how are you doing? You, can I see what you got? Where are your stickies on the wall? And they would say, well, we haven't had a meeting yet, and I'd say, do it now because you only get till next Friday, right? So that was my way of, of time boxing the requirements so we did not descend into requirements hell. And then the architects always wanted their fair share, so I gave them another two weeks. Then they could 
play around and I would say, can you show me a prototype? Can you show me two or three prototypes? Then that got them thinking about prototypes so that they could say, well, we tried this thing and here's how it worked and here's how it didn't work. And then once they've done all their work, which might or might not be relevant <laughs> to the end of the program, um, the feature teams, because I always had feature teams, worked in and able to, um, they were able to figure out what do we need to do to say, how do we deliver this feature or feature set into the code base as quickly and as well as possible? So some of my features took six weeks, and some of them took two weeks, and some of them took three weeks. This was not agile by a long shot, but everyone always integrated all of their stuff, um, hopefully every day. But then by the, by the end of that given feature, we had working features in the code base. This is stage delivery. It's not agile. On the other hand, it works really, really well. And that's something that I found really useful. It's a great workflow for companies struggling because, like you point out, it's not going to be agile is not a great fit for everybody and lean won't work everywhere. But if you can at least get feature driven and deliver in a way where you're integrated and ready to go after a specified amount of time, you're going to be better off than than many of the companies that are still stuck in a, a waterfall type model, not continually integrating and not acting collaboratively, which is what I think your approach gets some of these teams to do even uh, in spite of themselves. So a very interesting approach there. Something that, uh, that caught my ear as you were going through that, and I actually tweeted out uh, a few days ago this comment. Um, you, you point out, and I, and I was cheering when I read this uh, in your book, that servant leadership doesn't mean you're a pushover. Right. And I, I thought, you know, there's so much flaccid scrum that scrum has become so weak because they think that you know, the servant leader is a pushover. And so I really appreciated the fact that you pointed out that just because you're a servant leader doesn't mean you're a pushover. And sometimes some tough love is being a servant to, to your teams. Oh, yes. I have had many uh, occurrences of working with teams, working with product managers, working with salespeople. I mean, you name it across the organization where I essentially said, um, if you can't do this, I'm going to find somebody else who can. This is right. your job. This is your deliverable to my program, to my team, to my whatever. And it's my job to make sure that you deliver. And so far, what I have seen is you have not delivered anything. So uh, I, I have learned how to provide feedback in a, um, a more acceptable way. And I am... And my husband likes to say that he smoothed off all of my rough edges. So um, after 31 years, yeah, I think that he can take some credit. But um, one of my managers said to me many, many years ago, I was too blunt and direct because I actually told someone in sales, I need this information. I need it in this, in this way, and I need it by Tuesday. And if you cannot provide me this information, my team cannot go forward. You are, you are um, preventing my team from doing this. So that was too blunt and direct? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I was being a servant leader for my team. I did not know that that was the, the way you would talk about it at the time. But I did know that this person was a bottleneck and I could not allow this to happen. Now, I might, I might be a little gentler these days, although probably not. I'm not... 
<laughs> you know, I like to be a warm person in person, but I'm I'm a hard boiled egg. I'm not touchy feely. This is, none of this right. stuff comes from touchy feely. This all comes from this works in the organization, and I want to make a team that works. I want to make a program that works. I want to deliver the results that we want. I don't want to burn any bridges. So for me, this is really important. That's why the servant leadership part is so important. Because if you, if you have a successful program, but you are no longer able to work across the organization, then you have burned some bridges. So I don't want to do that. On the other hand, I do want to deliver. So it's a, it's a really interesting problem. And in one of those areas where that, uh, that type of problem, at least in my experience, has manifested itself is when you start mixing software development on top of architecture and hardware dependencies. Yeah. And I, and I notice that you do, um, you address that, that interesting dynamic as well. You know, for me, it's always been a struggle throughout my career to make sure that that stuff is aligned, just the lead times on, on actually getting the hardware in and then getting it racked and wired and cabled. And um, some of that can be uh, fascinatingly difficult to, to predict. But uh, you do address it there. What are some of the tips that you give uh, these program leaders on how to better work with architecture and especially the hardware, the physical side uh, of this very uh, digitally based work that we do? So architecture, I, I always have two minds about architecture. I want to have an understanding of where we might be at the end from the beginning. I, I, I like the big picture, but I like it in terms of a picture. And I like assumptions and risks also along with the picture. So when I work with architects, I say, Please don't spend the next three months working on the architecture. Please include all of the people on the program or the project and tell us what you're thinking and tell us why you're thinking that. And then tell us how will you help us review the architecture as we proceed. Um, back in my first edition of Manage It, I actually said, I have had the best results with architecture when we implemented three features and then said, how does this affect the architecture? How does this affect the big picture? And it's even more so on a program. So I like working, I like architecture as a social activity where the architect is not in the ivory tower. The architect is not a PowerPoint architect. The architect is working as a part of a team and, and maybe leads a community of practice, right? That's a, that's a great idea. So that, because we don't want to lose the value of architecture, but I want the architect to shepherd the business value of the product. And that's, I think for so long, architects were measured by the way that they led the organization in whatever form that means and by how their ideas got imposed on teams. And that does, it just does not work for an agile or lean organization. It just doesn't. So that's the piece about architecture. There's kind of two parts of, of hardware. One is the infrastructure, which is you need a T1 line for an office and you have to depend on the phone company or the cable company or whatever telecom provider you have. And they might give you a lead time and who knows if you can trust that lead time. Right. <laughs> so there's there's infrastructure stuff and can you buy enough racks and enough computers and enough wiring and get it done? That's, um, 
more of a known problem, although it's not an easy problem to fix. Right. And so that's why I like Kanban boards with um, seeing what the, what the outliers are, because those are not things that you can do in the next week or two or three or four, but you have to put them somewhere and make sure that they're done. For, for, archi- for engineering and hardware pieces on a program, right? are you doing a board? Are you doing an embedded controller? Are you doing anything else? Every time I work with hardware and mechanical people these days, they iterate in software. They might not have a deliverable until they go to, fa- to final form, but they iterate in software. And my suggestion to these people is to say, how can you practice um, anything with your hardware? How can you deliver a demo? How can you deliver any kind of integration with the software on an ongoing basis? And I find that if I ask them that question, they often say, oh, I can mock this up in paper. I can mock this up in with plastic. I can mock this up in something. And then you actually have a prototype that you can look at. So is this deliberate? Is this really agile? I don't know if it's agile or iterative. I don't know if it's iterative or incremental. I don't care what it is as long as we get something that we can figure out how how can we check as we go that the final product will all work together? And that's got to be the best way to look at it. Far too often, it's a very combative relationship. And I, and I think that that collaborative end goal feature, visualizing the work, uh, whether it's a Kanban board or just a big picture on the wall, whatever it is you decide to do. But, and and that, that message, I think, is pervasive through your entire book that it's, if you're collaboratively working together and you're visualizing the work, you're going to be okay. <laughs> And, uh, but that's also, there's a lot of trust and transparency and safety that comes into that, as we talked about before. And so not everyone can do that. But I think that's a great message that, that flows throughout your book. Uh, the last area on the program management book really caught my eye is the estimation. You, you noted it before we got started that you had listened to some of the episodes of this podcast, which I just very appreciative of that. You know, very thrilled that you're, you're also a listener. Um, so I think you know that Neil Killick, Vasco Duarte, uh, Woody Zool, Chris Chapman, these are all friends of the podcast. We're open to the, the no estimates discussion. I think it's neat that predicting the unpredictable and now in uh, Agile and Lean Program Management, You've devoted chapters to the no estimates discussion. From a program management perspective, you certainly have key practices, key metrics, and things that you're looking at. So you're you're clearly fact-based, data-driven. But then to open up to the no estimates discussion, some would say that's a contradiction. I'm wondering how... No, I'm certainly not one of those, but in your mind, when you when you look at the no estimates piece, especially around estimation, where do you think that's going, and why do you think that's an important enough topic to include in in both of your your more recent books? So, for me, the idea behind no estimates is that you can build a project or a program with resilience, not with prediction. And if you, the larger the effort the harder it is to estimate. I mean, I don't know how to estimate something that big. And if I had not been a program manager on at least six or seven large programs, I mean hundreds of people and hardware. So we had NREs, non-recurring engineering expenses, and we had a large run rate with all those people. And nobody ever asked me for an estimate. 
<laughs> Nobody. Because these programs are so important to the business of the organization. They asked me when we would deliver certain features. They asked me when we could be ready for trade shows. They asked me when we could be ready for certain things. But they did not ever say how much will it cost or how much will the whole thing take. They often said, you have to do it in a year <laughs> or, or you have to meet this trade show. And, and these are the minimum requirements for a trade show. So because I never had to, never had to give an estimate, but I always had to have resilience. This is right. what I think is really important. And I have met so many program managers who say, we're supposed to estimate what we can do for a quarter with 27 teams, which is, it's incomprehensible to me that, first of all, that estimate has any value. And secondly, that you could even try it. So that's why I actually asked in the program management book, what do managers really want? And I suspect that they want you to work to a target, which is fine, right? You need to have, they, they think that for a customer or for a trade show or for a demo or for some other point in time in the future, they need to have a minimum set of deliverables. Now, maybe you can do that minimum set, maybe you can't, but if you know the target that you're working towards and you know that it's a relatively close target, you could probably come pretty close. Or you can say to people, we can do this for a couple of weeks and then tell you, here's what we can do more. Here's how much of that we can get. Here's what we can tell you we can't get this part of it. What do you need to know? And instead of the estimation part, I really like thinking about what is the investment that people want to put in before they say it's time to stop. Because now, now that gets us, gets us to the cost of delay. And it essentially establishes a target, which I think is interesting, too, because now we're, we're working towards something rather than a nebulous uh, prediction, right? Yeah. I mean, I can predict anything, <laughs> and right. it's probably wrong. So, But if you say to me, can you deliver this thing, right, whatever this deliverable is in this time frame, and if it's a year out, I might say, I have no idea. But if you say to me, I want this feature set and it's a smaller set of features and I want it in a month or two or even, God forbid, three, then I am much more likely to be able to say either I need to break this feature set down into something smaller or here's, here's what I can deliver and the rest is at risk, right? And so what do you want me to do about the risk part? Yeah, and then that bleeds into prioritization discussions and team discussions and, and all those great things, which I, I think that that helps actually spur a discussion about the work, helps find out which features you actually need. Because when those constraints set in, suddenly a product owner says, well, the first five were necessary. The next five were kind of my favorites. And all of a sudden, you've perhaps saved a little bit of money and you can actually hit some of the, the targets they've set. So I, it's a very powerful method but it, it still honors the fiduciary responsibilities of an organization. It still honors the alignment with the organization. Mm -hmm. It just simply uh, creates an option and perhaps some more rich conversations and more resilient projects. That's what I'm all about because I want projects to succeed. I want the chaos report to come out at some point and say, we have 85% success. 
instead of right. whatever we have now, which is much less than that. Well, before we pivot away from uh, the book, is there any other part that you'd like to highlight for the listeners? Anything that you think that, that I haven't brought forward that they, that they really ought to know about before we pivot to another area? So I think the only other thing is the notion of small world networks. The If you've ever seen about or heard about the six degrees of separation or how you're connected to Kevin Bacon and all that stuff. That's all about the small world network. And you and I are part of a small world network of people who talk about leadership and management and projects and programs in the Agile community. Also talk with people who are very in-depth on the technical work and very in-depth on how technical people can do their work. So I'm, I'm connected some of us, with some of those people, I'm directed, con, uh, directly connected, and with some of them, I'm only connected through you and through the podcast. That that's how I heard about them. But because I heard about them, I'm happy to go back to a podcast and say, "How do I get to this guy again who I heard this really interesting thing from?" Because Ryan will either know or have a link to something that he's written or said or a way to get in contact with him. So you are part of my small world network, and everybody who listens to this podcast is part of ours. We don't have to know everything. We, know, we have to know how to get to people who know what we need to know. And in the organization, especially in a program, there are people all over the organization who know all kinds of stuff. So let's, let's use them in the best sense of use. Not to manipulate them, but to get the information that we need so we can do our work. I, I, tr- I think that's a truly uh, wonderful concept. And it is very much true. So the, they, these are small world networks. And if any of the listeners out there are interested in connecting with uh, any of the guests that we've had on so far, they've all been very open to continuing the discussions. And now you know how to get a hold of people. And I, and I think that's truly a... It's just a beautiful idea. It's very community-centric, and I appreciate you sharing that. That's wonderful. So as we pivot on, this one is kind of a, a kind of a selfish idea on my part, or perhaps a selfish pivot, because Behind Closed Doors was very influential for me when I was a developer. And I think what most people don't understand, can correct me if I'm wrong, you started as a, as a developer as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I was so, a software developer back in 1977. And so I don't think most people know that about you, but you started as a developer and worked your way through uh, the many uh, mazes and pitfalls and, and U-turns of our profession. And, and as we work our way through uh, development and, and project management and management and leadership and we move through. But um, I think having that perspective made behind closed doors all the more powerful because I don't think that as a developer, especially early in my career, I fully understood uh, what management does, uh, what's going on when the door is shut, the constraints that they're under. And it, it created this awareness that there was a bigger world outside of code happening around me and, and impacting me that, uh, that really uh, was very influential. What are some of the things that perhaps led to behind closed doors? And then is some of that feedback and some of the things I talked through, is that common from what you hear from people or has it had different impacts on others? Uh, so let me, let me start with the first question, which was how to, what led to behind closed doors? Yeah, the, uh, the observations and, and perhaps um, you know, the, the impetus to, to get some of our, our secret behind closed door knowledge out into the world. So Esther and I had both been 
working with organizations and coaching managers and execs, and we kept seeing the fact that they did not have regular meetings with people. And the one-on-one is uh, a fabulous tool and so underutilized in our industry, especially if people, especially if managers wander around, which I think is a good thing for managers to do. And you have a little conversation here and a little conversation there. And back then, people were having um, status meetings with their team. So what I had noticed is that people do not say personal things in a status meeting. In fact, in Manage It, I actually talked about one of the perils. Uh, there's a schedule game of it's not I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then if somebody else wants um, a little bit of time to fix something in their part of the code, everyone says, oh, fine, take all the time you need because everyone else is already behind. So this is this is a common problem in our industry. Agile takes care of a lot of that because we have a lot more transparency. But even so, with the way, um, especially with Flask and Scrum, um, people don't actually do the work that they sign up for. The work is in progress for too long. I mean, there's all kinds of things. So we, what Esther and I saw is that managers were not doing one-on-ones. They were not providing effective feedback. They were inflicting help and coaching and not coaching on the stuff that they needed to do. And they were not, in a sense, protecting their teams. They, they were not servant leaders. They All of the stuff that rolls down from senior management just went through without a filter. And none of the good stuff would roll up to senior right. management. So managers were not as effective as they needed to be. And... We, we saw this problem in our, um, in our consulting practices, so we decided to write a book about it. That's great. And for the listeners out there, regardless of your role, if you're in leadership, management, or programming, it's one of those books that will, like I said, it will uh, bring to light some of the, the outside systems of work going on around you that are impacting you. And it can also, I think, help you be more effective with your own management. And so what I mean by that is it, it gives the insights into what they need and the things that, uh, that are concerning them. And so you, you're able to, to understand that better. So I just wanted to, to ask that question quickly about that book because it really did have a, a huge impact on my, uh, my own management career. So that's great. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. And, uh, and of course, the listeners are familiar with Esther Derby, your co-author. Mm-hmm. She was on uh, the show a little while back. We recently had Esther on to talk about um, HR practices mm-hmm. and so how human resources can impact teams and how partnering with HR can bring about a better agile transformation. And so definitely some great insights for management there as well. And that's really been, I, I think, and, and don't let me put a label on you unless it's fair, but... I think the the pragmatic management insights especially has been a a very pervasive theme, at least recently on on your career, Joanna. Is that fair that that uh, that you've sought to bring pragmatism to the to the management world? Oh, absolutely. That's why I call my newsletter the pragmatic manager, because um, I, I really want people to think about what works for them. Not everything is going to work in every situation. And if it does work for you in the way I've suggested, great. But there's, there's a principle behind what I suggest. And if you can make something work using that principle, more power to you. Right. And, and if you can't, 
discard it right. and move on to the next big idea, right? Right. Because um, I'm not fond of um, beating heads against walls, especially mine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and that's the hardest part about Agile. And this is a theme that comes up on the podcast pretty regularly is that you have to engage your brain. It's not a it's not a passive exercise. It's one of those where you are actively engaged and involved, and um, you have to do a little thinking, a lot of experimentation, mm-hmm. a lot of evaluation of those experiments, and move on to the next thing. And it uh, that's hard. Oh, yeah. it's really hard. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of clients and potential clients I have who say I want to move to Agile because it's the best new thing. And I say, so let's talk about the last time you did an experiment. And that's when a senior manager says to me, experiments? We don't have time for experiments. <laughs> and I say, well, let me suggest a reframe of this. And, right. and then if they still don't get it, then I might say, you know, here are some things you might consider. Here are some, some things to read. And after you decide to read those, let's talk again. Again, and from a coaching stance, it just gets back to speaking to people where they're at mm-hmm. and not trying to drag them to where they aren't. And, and again, it's that, that honest tone in your, in your book and, and in all of your talks that I think a lot of the people, that I think it's appreciated that uh, it's not always the best fit. It's not always the right thing, but, but we'll, we'll circle back around and check in on you and, and, and maybe it will be at that point. So I think that's a great uh, coaching and consulting stance that you've adopted and, and hopefully have taught some other people through this podcast and some of your other work. So I really appreciate that as well. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying it. So we are coming up on our time box, and I want to make sure we're, we're respectful of your time. And so at this point of the podcast, uh, this is where anything that you have to plug, anything that you have coming up, any talks that you're giving, I know that we're both going to be at Path to Agility yes. here in a month. But if you have any other speaking engagements coming up, and of course, uh, we've been talking about Agile and Lean Program Management, which is uh, Joanna's latest book. And so I hope you guys, after this discussion, will pick that up. So I'll plug that for you. But anything else that you have going on, uh, I'm sure the listeners would love to hear about. So I'll be at Belgium Testing Days in June. Um, we're still finalizing exactly what I'm going to do. So it's a little late to be finalizing, but it's, um, it's the best possible way to think about how do we, how do we get something that people really want and will uh, sign up for. And I'll be at the Agile Conference in Atlanta in July. And I have um, Utah Exxon and I wrote a book called Diving for Hidden Treasures, Uncovering the Cost of Delay in Your Project Portfolio. And that is, it's now available everywhere. And I'm working on the print version of that. So if you, if you want to understand what cost of delay does to your estimates, to your projects, to your programs, this might be a really good book for you to look into. Pretty exciting. So we're going to get to hang out at Path to Agility. Yeah. Um, I'll also be out at the Agile Conference this year. So I was able to get a talk accepted. So, hey, we're going to be able to spend a little time together Yay! this year. Really appreciate you joining me today. This is um, enjoyed the conversation. Really appreciate you joining us. Hopefully we can wrangle you into doing this again someday. I would but love to. For me, uh, I don't think I'm going to plug anything this week. I think we, uh, I want you guys, instead of me plugging something, I want you to go out, pick up Agile and Lean Program Management. We'll get the Lean Pub link. Uh, in the show notes. I think it's also out on Amazon.com, so we'll get a link out to that now. So that'll be my plug for the week, other than the conferences that, that we've mentioned. And uh, 
Again, just really appreciate all the listeners. We have this podcast has moved into a top 100 podcast in the software how to category on iTunes there. So I really appreciate the that you're listening, that you're sharing. We see all the tweets and the messages and you guys are really sharing the podcast and getting the word out. It can only be successful because of all of you. So thank you for your notes. Thank you for your messages. And thank you for being here. Those are my, I guess those are my plugs. Pick up Joanna's book and just a, a heaping of gratitude onto all of you listening. So with that said, thank you very much for listening this week, everyone, and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com.